Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my old friend Brad Behrens about the power of language and even what we can learn about business from Shakespeare. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. I'm so happy to welcome Brad Behrens of Big Digital Idea Consulting. Full disclosure, Brad and I are old friends. Uh, we've been friends for a long, long time. Uh, and wait till you meet Brad. You're going to love him. Brad, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks, Bruce. It's great to be here. Tell us your story. How did you get to where you are now? How did you end up at Big Digital Idea Consulting? Big Digital is my company, uh, and it's a, a boutique digital strategy agency. And we have clients as big as you know Adidas and Hakuhodo, the Japanese advertising agency, and as small as two guys who don't even have a garage. My story is weird because I'm a nerd in every conceivable direction. And I started my career at, as getting a doctorate in Shakespeare. And so Shakespearean history, stage history, and literary criticism. And, and that was the nerdiest thing you could possibly do. And I, I uh, my nerdery has not abated at all. But at a certain point, I wound up getting bored uh, with the Academy. I wound up going into Hollywood and I was a story analyst at DreamWorks and New Regency. I worked for Sidney Pollack and Bette Midler. Uh, and then the internet kind of came calling right during the big, the dot-pocalypse of like 2000 or so. And I had been hand-building websites for my students at UC Berkeley. And so it became uh, something that I was like, hmm, I really should try this. And the internet gobbled me up and has never spat me out. So I was on a few startups. And um, one of them was this crazy one that wanted to be YouTube when broadband penetration was at about 3%. I wound up during the kind of great collapse, the apocalypse, going to Earthlink. I was brand side there as the digital editor uh, for a few years. And then I got recruited away for a career in trade publications and trade events. So I was the editor-in-chief of this thing called iMedia Connection, which was the, one of the early native publications around the collision between advertising and digital technologies. This is back when they, you didn't have people at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal taking this stuff seriously. Skip ahead, iMedia got acquired. I relatively quickly found myself as the worldwide head of programming for a, a portfolio of events about that collision between digital technology and advertising. Shows like AdTech or the iMedia Summits, 54 shows a year all over the world. At the same time, I'm still a researcher and always have been. I got close with the Center for the Digital Future at the Annenberg School at USC. I've been a senior research fellow there. After I decided to leave the event biz, uh, I wound up as their chief strategy officer. I'm still a strategic advisor and research fellow there. The center does longitudinal research about the impact of technology on behavior. They've been surveying the same thousand, thousand, couple thousand, pardon me, families in this country for about 20 years. And for about 15 years, they've been doing it all over the world with the World Internet Project. Uh, and so that kind of survey data 
only really becomes interesting when you have trend lines, which is to say year two, three, four, five, and six. About a year and a half ago, I got recruited to become the first ever editor-in-chief at the Interactive Advertising Bureau, which is um, a, a trade association focused on make, uh, making the world safe for Google and Facebook because they really need a lot of help with that. And I, I did a year and a half there as we are at least allegedly coming out of the pandemic, although at the moment that you and I are recording this conversation, the Delta variant is surging, but the, the IB is going back to the office in New York. I live in Oregon. And at a certain point, I thought that my ability to lead the five teams that I was running, uh, if everyone else is in the office, really wasn't likely to, to be uh, easy. And so, you know, in consultation with my boss and with the CEO, I gave two months notice and that ended at the end of July. And right now, uh, I've got, I'm on a bunch of boards and I advise a bunch of companies. And so that keeps me very busy. I'm also writing a book and maybe we can talk about uh, this book called The Shakespeare Strategy later on. But that's, that's the sort of the, the superficial story. The kind of underlying emotional story that is worth talking about is I really thought that I would spend my days teaching Shakespeare uh, you know, to college students. And then at a certain point when I realized that there was a 90% unemployment rate in my chosen field, showed a certain flaw in my initial logic of choosing that field, I had these kind of crazy technical skills. And to no one's surprise more than my mother's, I had sort of practical management skills. So I wound up going into business. And, and in fact, that journey from Shakespeare into business is part of what underpins this book that I'm really just uh, starting to dig in on right now. So that's that's the overly long version of the Brad Barron story. Um, you, you got your hands full. You also have dogs. I have, I have children, both human and canine. In a world where so many people find themselves overcommitted, you managed to balance all that stuff. But I know that, uh, you know, there is a through line to all of your work, which is analyzing information, uh, having insight, sharing insight, uh, being able to collaborate, being able to see through content and, and make good decisions about content, whether it's going to be presented to folks at an event, whether it's, it's in print or online, right? You're, in, in, in a way, what, what the genius you bring to the table is your ability to read and analyze content of all different sorts uh, and help other people make sense of it, I think. I, I would say that certainly I'm a good editor. Helping people's points to get pointier is, is something that I do a lot. The other thing that I think I do is I'm very sensitive not only to uh, stories, but also to audiences. And so if you're looking for a through line, storytelling, but also just listening. And so one of the things that I'm very keen on is always understanding that people decide with their hearts and justify with their heads. And so if you're trying to communicate with people and you're all head and no heart, then you're not going to get the result that you want. And so I, for, I did a tour uh, when I was at IB for six months. I also was the CMO. And this was my constant refrain with the marketing team, which is people need an emotional reason to choose something. So a lot of the work that I've done, because I, when I was running all of those shows, no one has ever seen as many presentations as I have, and no one has convinced 
as many people to believe in free speech, which means to come and give a speech for free uh, in front of my various audiences as I have, right? I mean, I have to persuade people. And persuasion is not about bamboozling someone into making a decision that they'll later regret, although lots of salespeople might tell you otherwise. Persuasion is about finding the win-win. What is the place where everyone is going to be aligned and everyone is going to be successful together. And that is something I'm good at, which is to say to people, hey, I think that you really care about this thing here. Here's why I think that it would be fantastic if you could come and speak. So a great example is I got uh, Dr. Fauci to speak at the IAB's big event, the annual leadership meeting in March of this year. I wasn't trying to bamboozle him, although, uh, you know, I probably would have if I could have, but but I knew that I'd have to try harder than that. But I said, look, uh, when, we have, when the world went inside and everyone had to move their lives online, the companies that are the members of the IAB, those are the companies that made that possible. And they would love to hear from you about what's coming, like where, how we got to where we are and where we're going. But the companies that made the thing that you asked the country to do possible, those are the people in the audience. He was like, okay, you know, and so, you know, we, we, we arranged for a 15 minute interview. But again, that's trying to find the common thread uh, is, is one of the things that I do well. Um, so that's what you call reframing and untangling. Am I right? Yeah. Well, reframing and untangling are basically all that I do, whether it's, you know, personally or professionally. Reframing is, you know, how can we reset the context of this to look for, again, that common ground? Untangling is uh, simply that when I'm talking with people, whether I'm uh, helping a young business or a senior executive, people just get distracted. They get distracted by the stuff that's happening in the very short term, as opposed to the stuff that's really going to count. So I, I had a, a young mentee who I was working with just a few weeks ago, and she got very concerned. She had a big career decision to make, and she was focused on like the stuff that had to happen in the next 90 days and was getting completely distracted by that. And I said, forget about all of that. Uh, there's basically a conservation of bullshit principle that when you're going to be making some kind of career transition, there's going to be a lot of stuff that is going to get in the way and it's going to be much harder than you think it is. Focus instead, this is the untangling part, focus on where you're going to be in two years, in five years and in 10 years. That's what this decision that she had to make about, do I go this path or the other path? The next 90 days are going to be a horrible, turbulent experience, no matter which decision you make. So where do you want to be? So that's the untangling, pulling people out because they get completely mired in short-term tactical decisions and don't think about the long-term decisions. And particularly when it just got back to reframing, one of the other things was like, let's talk about your total life, not just the job, but what are your conditions of satisfaction in your life, right? So you, Bruce, for example, I know you're a martial artist, and you really need to be able to do that on a regular basis. That's one of your conditions of satisfaction. People don't take those things into account when they're making these decisions because they think, oh, it should all be about work. I'm like, no, you, you have a husband or a wife, you have a kid, you have schools, you have all of these things. You, know, you, have to, you have to sort of draw a circle around your whole life. So that's what I mean by reframing and untangling. So it's asking the right questions. And I love that you focus on what's a win for you. And it's, it's sort of a more focused way of asking the Stephen Covey question, you know, what is thinking win-win? 
too many people don't do that and they don't they don't look at the whole sphere of meaning and i do think that your particular skill at uh seeing a landscape of meaning and being able to take apart what's what's important in this picture that's got to come partly from your scholarly background. I, I actually would say, I'd say two things. One is um, everything I learned about being a manager uh, and managing people's careers. Because when you're someone's manager, you have two responsibilities. And unfortunately, we only usually talk about one of them. The one we usually talk about is you are the manager of that person's day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year output. But the other thing, if you want to be an actually like a a positive force in people's lives is when you're that person's manager, you are also the steward of that person's career. So you need to not only be thinking about that person in that job, but also where is this person going next? Because go-getters get or they go. And so you need to be really clear on talking with the people who are your highest performers about where they're going, because sometimes it may be a way and you may want to enable that because that helps them. Uh, The other thing I'll say in terms of reframing is I have a patented Brad Behrens question. What is the dream outcome? W-I-T-D-O. What is the dream outcome of this conversation? If I ask people that conversation, that question in a conversation, what is the dream outcome? Then a, a wonderful thing happens, which is they start thinking bigger. Not just what do you want, but what's the dream outcome? Asking people to dream when you're talking with them about writing something or speaking somewhere or having a conversation with someone else. And it just allows people to up-level their conversations and up-level what they're thinking. And that's one of the things that helps me to get to that win-win, which is, you know, if I know what your dream is, not what you want, but what's the dream, then maybe we can get uh, beyond the kind of the transactional Getting beyond the transactional is another kind of key theme of my life. It's it's a really good one. I, I agree with you. I think that has a very tactical impact on where the mind goes. I also believe that sort of where the body goes, the mind will follow. And that's one of the biggest problems with like you and I are having this conversation uh, on our computers. You're in Connecticut. I'm in Portland, Oregon. And we are... Uh, able to look at each other, although given the kind of complexities of the technology, we can't quite see eye to eye. But we also, there's so many things where just being in a room with someone gives you so much more. You know, one of my rules as an event producer is no comfy chairs, right? Like I prefer to have really uncomfortable bar stools on stage. You just have to let the ladies know not to wear uh, short skirts because that can you know be a basic instinct moment if you don't warn them. But But you've got to have people be physically a little bit on edge when they're speaking on stage. Because if you put people in executive chairs, then all of the energy goes out of their bodies. And so again, like just just like taking back when we were allowed to leave the house, I would go on walking meetings with people because again, you change someone's uh, physical position and uh, you change how they think. Yeah, I agree with you about um, this, um, this remoteness Uh, has an effect. And there's a lot of research on that, the propinquity research on uh, what are the differences that occur when we are in proximity to each other physically. Uh, I always joke with people that we can see each other, we can hear each other, we're losing visual and auditory data, but we can't smell each other, taste each other, or touch each other. We shouldn't be doing that at work anyway. But there is sort of an intangible energy. Yeah, there is something that's missing. 
And you can, you, I mean, my friend, I, th I think you knew him as well, uh, Warren Bennis. And Warren, uh, my late friend, uh, was an extraordinary thinker. And he said that, you know, the best executives are first class noticers. And it's harder to notice things if it's crammed into this screen and you're looking at the same screen all day, every day. The area of where you you really um, not just have training but but tremendous insight, or one of the areas is language, and um, and and you talk about nouns and verbs. Um, nouns are perishable, but verbs are forever, uh, and I love that because it's another rule that I don't think most people you know would come up with that on their own. And I think it's, but I also what I one of the things I love about it is it's easy to remember. And so it's a real takeaway, like like your what is a dream outcome of this meeting? I think this is also a really powerful device. Nouns are perishable and verbs are, are forever. Can you say a little bit more about that and help people understand? Business people tend to manage towards nouns, but people manage their behavior towards verbs. And here's what I mean, that in, in the entertainment business, it's a really big deal that during the pandemic, so many people pivoted from watching broadcast and cable television to watching streaming video, and that so many people pivoted from listening to the radio, live radio, terrestrial radio, or even satellite radio, pivoted into podcasts like this one. Business people manage towards products, but customers audiences, citizens, I really loathe the word consumers, they tend to focus on activities. And so the verb, the perma verb is watching video, being entertained by laying back and watching a show. And most humans do not care if it's on uh, CNN or CNN plus. They don't care if it's on the Disney channel or if it's on Disney plus, they just want to watch something, but businesses get very focused on that. So if you are looking at behavior, behavior is very liquid. You can pour behavior from one container into another. You can take the behavior of watching a show on uh, ABC and you can easily pour that into watching that same show on Hulu. The people who are watching the show don't care. The fact that the executives at Disney really care because they make more money on cable per person than they do on Disney Plus or whatever. Okay, uh, but but that's what I mean by if you focus on the verbs, uh, listening, watching, doing, exercising, talking, uh, that you you become more focused on, on what really counts, uh, which is people's motivations, people's conditions of satisfaction, not on the distribution mechanism that the corporation makes money on. Uh, what you're really talking about is, is what are people going to do? What do they want to do? What do they feel like doing? What did they do? What might they do? That's where all the action is. And I did intend that as a pun. If you, I don't know if you know the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, the behavioral economics, and Richard Thaler is another one. But Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, which was this incredibly a uh, wonderful book that kicked my ass. It just took me so long to get all the way through it, but it was worth it. But he has this, this mental model of system one and system two. And system one is extraordinarily brilliant and fast at analyzing things, but also very, very lazy. It always, system one always takes the shortcut. System two, very data-driven, uh, very interested in getting to the right answer, uh, but also doesn't want to work that hard. 
right? And so what, and most of what I was talking about in terms of people choosing with their hearts and justifying with their heads is about system one. You know, politics and advertising uh, are very system one focused, right? You want to give people the, you want people to have the least amount of cognitive effort to reach that, the decision you want them to reach. System two is when you're like, well, hold on a minute. I really like for high consideration purchases or decisions, like where am I going to go to college? Uh, what car am I going to buy? Where am I going to live? What school am I going to take, send my kids to? Those are situations where a lot of people will pivot into system two. And that's where people will balance their hearts and their heads much more. Uh, but with system one, branding questions, or again, like the art of the subject line in an email, if the subject line is all about the sender and not about the receiver, then it's usually a bad subject line. We're talking with Brad Barron's Big Digital Idea Consulting. Uh, we're going to take a little break and we'll be back in just a minute. This is Cam Marston, host of What's Working with Cam Marston, a radio show and podcast featuring the trends shaping today's workforce, workplace, and marketplace. My guests give insights into the trends shaping their business with the hopes that something they say will spark an idea that will make each of us a little bit better at whatever it is we do. Recent guests have included a Tony Award-winning actor talking about how people in his industry create high-performing teams in a short amount of time to deliver spectacular stage performances. A national brand manager for a nearly 200-year-old whiskey company discussing their plans to attract the next generation of consumer to their product. And an educator discussing how and why boys are struggling so much in academics today. Find What's Working with Cam Marston on your favorite podcast app and consider subscribing. Uh, we are back with my old friend, Brad Behrens. Uh, he's now at Big Digital Idea Consulting, where he is the principal, where he works with organizations of all shapes and sizes. Uh, Brad, welcome back. Thank you. Um, and uh, when we left off, uh, uh, we were having a very interesting conversation, and um, it was in part about uh, nuances in language and how we can use uh, our understanding of language as a device. Um, so I want to continue with that theme. Talk about the power of analogy. Uh, it's another uh, theme of yours, and I, I, I want to, um, people to hear about the power of analogy and, and how they can use that. Part of it is a... Um less punitive way of thinking about getting outside of your comfort zone, which you hear people talk about all the time, and which generally speaking is just nonsense. Um, analogy is having some faith that uh, a series of skills that you've developed in one place can be used in another place. So it's the Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid kind of phenomenon. What I'm talking about is at a certain point when you want to try something new, what you really are trying to do is figure out what body of knowledge, what skills, what experience do I have that it came from before that I can apply to this? So here's an example. And this gets to another sort of general theme about uh, how to get ahead in business uh, without really trying, which is to actually with trying really hard, which is about hand raising. But uh, I was newly installed as the editor in chief at uh, iMedia Connection. This is many years ago. And we were doing an event about uh, entertainment marketing in digital environments. And they needed someone to do a kind of data presentation, right? Like, hey, you know, like what are the trends around audience behavior? I was really new. 
I had not ever used PowerPoint before. This is like 2005. But I said, I'll do it. And they looked at me like, well, and you could see they're like, ah, we don't know him that well, but, you know, he has given a lot of talks all over the world and, and he does have a doctorate. So maybe he can talk about data. So they were very uh, a little nervous, uh, but willing to, to let me try because it wasn't that long of a talk. And I, I worked really hard. But as I was trying to figure it out, like, who am I on stage? This is where the analogy comes in. And what I realized was that what they wanted wasn't uh, Brad, the editor, uh, they wanted Mr. Barron's, which is to say my old teaching persona, where I was sort of channeling Lou Gossett Jr. in the movie An Officer and a Gentleman, right? I was really tough as a teacher because I couldn't let the students know that I actually have like a, a, a caramel center and I'm a big softy inside. That persona that I developed over years, which was pretty formal, pretty authoritative, and very directive. And that analogy was like, that's who I need to be. Right? That's who I need to be on stage for this audience of executives. Now, executives, generally speaking, are a much easier audience to deal with than adolescents. If you're dealing with you know, 19 and 20-year-olds, they're much more likely to flagrantly fall asleep or, or do something horrible. Executives are just going to start playing with their phones. But I, I, So I walked on stage as Mr. Barron's, dressed the way I used to dress you know, uh, as a teacher, et cetera. And, and I killed. It was great. You know, and then my my persona, I've now given numberless talks all over the world, but my persona has evolved since then. So I tend to wear really crazy shoes, for example, now. But uh, but the the logic behind it and the analogy was to say the seed of what I need to do can be found elsewhere here. A lot of poets have made a really terrific web writers. And the reason for that is that poetry is a language that is structured both sequentially and spatially. both It exists in both time and space, which is also true of web writing. And so that's the, and another empowering analogy. So it just means looking for the, the thing, the seed of the future in the past. I, I really love that because I think basic problem solving, a huge amount of basic problem solving is most problems are not matters of first impression. Most problems have been solved before. There are lots of repeatable solutions. And when you do come across um, a matter of first impression, usually your best bet is to extrapolate from the nearest, closest repeatable solution that you already know. And, um, you know, most innovation is iterative, ultimately. And most people understand what analogy is. And I think analogy is critical to what is really a high order thinking skill, which is extrapolation. And when you have to improvise, when you have to take on a new challenge, your, your best bet is to look at what's the closest thing to this that I've done, or, or maybe what's something that I have to really think about to realize, oh, wait a minute, this is more like this other thing than I than I first realized, right? Because sometimes it's not obvious what the connection is. I, I concur. And also, um, that's, only, that's the beginning of the process, which is finding the analogy, finding the metaphor. Metaphors are a highly creative uh, kind of part of language, right? You, my love is a red, red rose. It, it's not like there's some metaphorical realm where that means something. It's you have your idea of my love and you have your idea of a red, red rose, and then you create that bridge between the two things. Analogy is another version of that. 
But if you stop, if you just have this sort of the same solution for everything, which uh, many consultancies have, right? They're like meat grinders that turn every cut of meat into hamburger. Um, that is not a great way of actually solving problems. The analogy is the beginning of the journey. And, and how would you describe that kind of iterative approach to going from the analogies? So the analogy is empowering, right? It gives you more confidence. Well, gee, I've written poetry, so maybe I can do web writing. And then how do you iterate? How do you, uh, how do you extrapolate? The hardest part is uh, stopping and and assessing uh you know we have so much momentum and we're always so busy and you asked earlier how i manage so many things on my plate and, and the short answer is badly you know I, i'm not uh, great at, at time management um, but i am pretty good at saying hold on and whether that's with myself uh, i take notes on paper i don't take notes on a computer i have uh, little stickies, and I'm holding one up right now. Uh, you can so you can see it. These are like you know one and a half inch by two inch post-its. Um, when I capture a t- an, an action item, when I capture a task, I write it on a piece of paper. Paper is, as a guy named Jim Margraf once said to me quite thoughtfully, uh, one of the the world's greatest display technologies. A way of stopping to reassess to go. Well, where is web writing? Where's poetry and web writing? We, we know that that'll get you going. But then to get you going in the right direction, you have to then think, well, how are these things not alike? That's the other side is compare and contrast. Comparison will accelerate you and you'll gain momentum, but then you want to be make sure you're going in the right direction. And that's where you want to stop. And that's particularly hard when so much of our lives is based on screens. This frictionless environment where you can spend the entire day going from one Zoom call to another Zoom call and never have a moment to go, Wait, hold on a second. Is this, are we doing the right thing? That's hard to do. I tend to deal with it by getting up earlier than anyone else, which when I was working from Oregon with a New York organization was really hard. And there are times when I got up at four, but, but stopping and changing into a different modality. Sometimes people just go from one computer to another. I have one friend who had a computer in his kitchen that was not connected to the internet. And he used this computer to write. Uh, so that when he wanted to write something, he would go to this other computer where there were fewer distractions. There was no social media. Nothing was popping up. And he had that oasis of calm. So I, I relate to what you're saying. My wife has this uh, uh, some kind of uh, application uh, loaded on her laptop where she can disable the Internet. And it's really funny because um, there are different levels of it. If you go nuclear is what they call it then it just shuts it off for X amount of time. Uh, and then, uh, but there are various levels of it. My favorite one is the one that flashes up a message that says, aren't you supposed to be working? Uh, but, but I think, you know, look, uh, having devices, having techniques that you use uh, to, to help yourself focus, to help yourself manage uh, yourself and your time, um, I think that's that's totally legit. But but let me let me just, just, just to build on that, it's not, to help you focus so much as it is to help you change your perspective. That if you if you go from a screen to paper, um, I would, uh, you know, I'll sometimes do meetings on my phone or an iPad or a laptop outside in the backyard. Just, just there are so many things that you can do to try to not have, be in the same position all day, every day, because those moments, those pivoting moments are moments where uh, insight might, might actually arrive, which is always what we want. 
I often have days where I'm just back to back to back to back to back. But I look for those gaps in my schedule. Those are the gold in my schedule. And I think the mind thrives on variety, right? The body thrives on routine. The mind thrives on variety. Uh, I, I want to ask you, because I'm actually curious about this. I, I, I've been thinking about this since I got uh, your email last night. Why do you habitually introduce yourself to waiters, waitresses, concierge at, at the hotel, cashiers at stores and so on? Why do you do that? You, there must be a strategy. Uh, maybe it's just because you want to get to know them, but I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. Why do you do that? Part of it is um, a, a commitment to fairness, which is whenever somebody walks up to me wearing a name tag, I feel bad because it puts them at a disadvantage. If I know that your name is Martha, but you don't know that my name is Brad, it just, it really, that, that kind of chaps my ass because it's not fair. You know, like it's, you know, oh, I'm going to call upon you. It just, it's, it's a way that organizations institute this disequilibrium or this power dynamic that I think is, is, is just unjust. I have a, a philosophical commitment, which is I want to find out about the person behind the role. We're more likely to, uh, to see each other as human. We're more likely to understand each other. And, and understanding each other is in short supply these days in this country. And so um, thinking about things that are beyond transactional, if I can make the checkout person at the supermarket laugh, then I think that's a win. Um, and this all started, I was giving a keynote address at this uh, big automotive conference in Las Vegas. And the, the poor woman was just so busy. I mean, there's so many people who were uh, in line and everything. And I just said, hey, I'm Brad, what's your name? And she was so shocked. And I noticed that in Vegas, it actually has a bigger premium than any other place in the world if you introduce yourself uh, to somebody. And again, I just think that it's fair and I think that it's more likely that I'll actually find out something interesting about the person who's helping me with my groceries or uh, who's making a coffee or whatever if, if we know each other's names. My children are incredibly indulgent with this particular flavor of lunacy. They think that I'm a nut for doing this, but they, uh, they're at least amused. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little quirky and some people might uh, find it like off-putting, like I prefer the anonymity of my role. But to your point, there is something fundamentally um, humanizing about it. And there, especially in service roles, uh, there can be this less than humanizing experience that people have. And some people, the way they treat folks who are in service roles is really unkind and dehumanizing. So uh, maybe that calls for an explicit antidote. So I like it. And, um, and my guess is every so often you meet somebody uh, who it's maybe the la not the last time you meet or you meet somebody where you learn something interesting. Here's an example, which is I've been very blessed and very lucky in my life, but the highest compliment that I've ever received in my life was from a young man named Jordan who works at the gym where I used to work out. Jordan has autism. And over the course of time, we got to know each other um, and he, he can speak and he can talk, but it's, it's very uh, labored. There are no short conversations with Jordan because it just takes him a little while to, to kind of wind up. And so over the course of time, 
I learned that if I was in a hurry, I would just have to say, hey, I'm so sorry. I do want to talk with you, but I can't talk right now. And he'd be like, okay. And then the next time I saw him, uh, we would we would chat at some length. Now I moved with my wife and our children to Norway for a year. We rented out the house. We you know we moved to Norway. We came back a year later. I walked into the gym, and this is the highest compliment that I've ever received in my life. Which is Jordan saw me, marched over to me, looked me dead in the eye, shook my hand, and said, "Welcome back." And we proceeded to have a talk. For someone with autism, that is an extraordinary. Uh, gesture. And and again, I, I was in tears uh, after he left um, because, again, I was so moved. That's an, a very complicated example, but I just believe that if you can see the person behind the role, that you're probably going to be in better shape. Yeah. And I think uh, equity and inclusion, you know, is all about humanizing. Uh, and um, as you say, uh, understanding is in very short supply these days. I do want to leave time to talk about your book, The Shakespeare Strategy. So just to be clear, of course, you've written many scholarly articles and you've written plenty of not scholarly articles and you've edited lots and lots of work. And you've even written a near future dystopian novel called Red Cross. But but I but I like your your idea here, The Shakespeare Strategy. And um, uh, tell us about that book that you're working on and tell us. Uh, what can we learn from Shakespeare about strategy? Sure. Well, thank you so much for asking the question. First of all, when I was getting my doctorate at UC Berkeley, one of my professors said that there was only really one question around Shakespeare that counted. Uh, and that question was, what's all the fuss about? And and for a long, long time, I, I agreed with him. And, and then I realized that he, his question was quite short-sighted because the question really is is that, but with an important addendum. So it's What's all the fuss about and why is the fuss so unevenly distributed? Why do some people, if you say, hey, I'm writing a book about Shakespeare or I have 10,000 books about Shakespeare in my garage, some people light up and they say, I love Shakespeare. Other people look at you with this uh, expression of alarm as if you, you might possibly be a serial killer. I mean, there's there's this there's a lot of people in the middle as well, but but so many people have a you know Shakespeare ooh yay and other people have a oh my god no uh, response to this to this particular topic. There is over four hundred years of this particular brand, the Shakespeare brand, being phenomenally successful. We have movies, we have theater festivals, we have a, there's a sex shop in Tetford, England called Romeo and Juliet. In Bergen, Norway, where I lived, there was a hairdresser called Romeo and Juliet, which again, not really a great idea, right? You too can die tragically and young for love if you get your hair cut here at this place. And then uh, Falstaff beer and Hamlet cigars. I mean, this, this is extraordinary stuff. We've been looking inside of the plays for the answer of what makes Shakespeare special for 400 years without success. The philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer famously said that a person of talent can hit a target that no one else can hit, but a person of genius can hit a target that no one else can see. So the postulate of this book is what did Shakespeare see and why did he see things so differently? And are there actionable lessons for business people today? Where does that lead me is it leads me to Shakespeare's unique until that point in history and very unusual even ever since uh, relationship between himself and the conditions of his work. 
there were lots of people who were writing in blank verse. There were lots of dramatists in Shakespeare's England who hadn't been to university. There were dramatists who had been to university. Uh, but what was absolutely unusual and unprecedented about Shakespeare was that he was the part owner of the company. He was the part owner of the buildings in which he played. He was the attached or lead dramatist, and he was one of the actors. So he had a multi-pronged, vertically integrated relationship with the conditions of his work that allowed him to rethink his work in different ways. So earlier we talked about uh, how behavior is liquid, about meander things and permaverbs. Shakespeare was able to think longitudinally about his audience because it was the same people coming to the same playhouse, seeing the same actors, wearing the same costumes, but in different stories. That is the fundamental thesis, which is that if we look closely at how Shakespeare's economic relationship with the conditions of his work was unique, we can also see what made him unique. So most people know that he was very financially successful in his career. He retired. He bought a big house in his hometown in Stratford. When he died, he left his second best bed to his wife. No one's been able to figure that one out. And we think that Shakespeare was an economic success because of his artistic genius. And what I'm saying is I actually think that the reverse is true that he was an artistic genius because of his business genius, that his business genius and his unique perspective led to the artistic triumphs, but also the financial ones later on. So he was able to see things that no one else saw because of his multifaceted role in relation to the work. Is that what you're saying? because he had a different perspective than anyone else, because no one else had all four of those roles simultaneously, that enabled and empowered him to do things that no one else could do. So the lesson for business people today, for your clients, for the people listening to this podcast is, what do you see that other people don't see? And how is that structured into your position? And if it's not, can you uh, find the perch where you can see things that other people can't see? So in order to become indispensable, for example, which is the title of this podcast and of your book, uh, part of that is understanding where your perspective on things is unusual and embracing those things. Yeah. And maybe changing your position or the ways in which you are positioned in relation to the work so that you do have uh, more uh, valence to your perspective. Absolutely. Given the digital environment, there's probably a lot more opportunities for vertical integration for a lot of people who have an entrepreneurial idea now because of the digital environment. Is that true? or I don't think you're thinking, hopefully I disagree uh, with you, which I think that vertical integration is much more powerful and much more of a threat when it comes from really big organizations like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, it's, or, or Netflix. I mean, if you look, or Tesla, great example. Uh, right, so Amazon now has got their own uh, delivery service. They've-, they've Their own delivery up. service, their own gross, three grocery store chains. Um, they have uh, you know, their own two entertainment services, Amazon Prime and imdb.com. Uh, they're, they're trying to get people to put Alexa on your face through these uh, glasses frames that have microphones in them. You know, and that is you know, to, to surround you at all times by all things Amazon and to make Amazon the default helper for anything that you want to do, say, buy you know, or consume. That is uh, terrifying. We have Google doing the same thing. 
And so vertical integration, when it's on a platform basis, and as with Facebook or the others that I mentioned, that's quite, uh, quite alarming. Now, for small and medium enterprise, those are simply usually organizations that just aren't big enough to, to diversify in that way. Um, but most of the sort of direct-to-consumer products that are launching and gaining steam, uh, they're direct-to-consumer, meaning they don't have retail, but they're still engaging with big platforms. You know, Instagram, which is part of Facebook, is, is very huge on supporting um, and, and uh, extrapolating data from and therefore getting that value by having those D2C companies go through their platform. So I'm not as concerned about vertical integration from small players. I don't think that that's where the kind of the breakups uh, of, you know, 50, 60 years ago with the movie theaters uh, happened. Uh, I'm very curious about where these things will be going with the gigantic tech companies that are extending their tendrils into so many other areas. And maybe the real lesson, at least for individuals, is diversify your perspective, try to look at things from as many different perspectives as possible so that you can have that Shakespeare advantage. Yes. If you can, uh, if you can move your perspective from one place to another, if you can assume someone else's subject position, you can just try working from a different place, um, you know, at the most basic level uh, or have conversations with people you don't ordinarily have conversations with. All of those things will ultimately lead you to have a more nuanced perspective on whatever it is that you're doing. Great advice. The Shakespeare advantage uh, is what I'm telling you you can get from the Shakespeare strategy. The Shakespeare strategy, a nonfiction book. Look for it. Uh, it'll be it'll, uh, when, when, uh, it's in process. I'm writing it and uh, I will be uh, letting you and everyone else know when someone can actually read it. Brad Barron's Big Digital Idea Consulting. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. In our next episode, I'll talk with Grammy award-winning songwriter and performer and my dear friend, Ben Gundersheimer, alias Mr. G. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.